Welcome to this special podcast to celebrate the VIEW's International Women's Day, where we honor the 750,000 incarcerated women across the globe and call on our governments for rapid decarceration of women in prison for non-violent crimes. The theme for 2022 is Hashtag Break the Bias, and we have the perfect guest. Judge Fryson sits in the Massachusetts Superior Court and has had quite a journey, first as a Marine officer, then a lawyer, and now as a Superior Court judge. Narinja Urkan, a law student and president of Durham Rebel Justice Society, spoke to Judge Fryson, and we are absolutely honored to learn from what she has to share. Over to you, Narinja. We're absolutely honored to speak with you, Judge. Um, thank you for taking the time to be with us. I'm sure we're going to learn so much from what you'll say and what we're about to hear. So first of all, what made you decide um, to join the Marines? It's not an obvious choice for women of um, color in the United States. Um, thank you. I joined the Marine Corps pretty, pretty young, but I was in law school at the time. I knew that um, I wanted to practice law and I pretty much assumed that I would get through that ordeal of law school and, be, and become a lawyer, but I wanted to have a second career as well. Um, and I wanted the second career to be at least partly physical in nature. Um, when I found out about the judge advocate programs and particularly the Marine Corps program, uh, it um, struck me because I, I wanted to serve and for it all to to sort of have a greater meaning as well. So that's what uh, drew me to the Marine Corps. So the theme for um, this year's International Women's Day is break the bias. Um, and how can you, as a um, prominent Black jurist, help to break the bias? What barriers still exist for you today? Um, there, there are a lot of barriers. There, there are constant barriers, um, whether you are just starting the practice of law, whether you're well into your um, practice and or whether you're on the bench, whatever you're doing, there will be issues of bias that you face and encounter. The, um, one of the points, I think, of uh, being on the bench and being a, a member of underrepresented communities is to um, try to keep the issue of bias and the the difference the differences in the outcomes uh, of the people we serve uh, on the table and clear in the minds of judges and uh, lawyers and clerks and probation officers and everyone that works in this business to keep it alive and on the table and to give um, to help people understand it more and to understand why we have the disparities that we have. Um, so that's a part of what I think um, as a Black jurist, part of my responsibility. Thank you. Um, so you said you were already in law school when you first joined the Marines. Um, how did you become interested in the law? What, what attracted you to it? Well, when I was um, in grammar school and high school, I um, had the opportunity to work for a group of Black lawyers uh, during my summers and um, later on uh, on a full-time basis. 
And that experience working for them really uh, solidified my interest in the law. So you're also involved in putting, you know, miscarriages of justice, you know, making them right. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that and how you're finding that in the U.S. especially? That was um, a a particular committee, um, so commissioned by the Boston Bar Association. And when I was practicing law in Boston, that was um, something that I uh, joined that committee, which was multidisciplinary, and it was um, the focus was to prevent wrongful convictions and to come up with best practices for um, district attorneys and others um, actors in the criminal justice system to prevent um, wrongful convictions. So it was um, lawyers, police, um, different agencies involved in that. Uh, I was one of the few uh, you know, solo practicing attorneys on, on that committee. So um, we did some research, had lots of meetings and discussions about the this topic. And obviously, with it being multidisciplinary, everyone did not agree um, all the time. But we came to some conclusions about criminal justice in Massachusetts and, and some ways that we thought would be instrumental in preventing people from being wrongfully convicted. If you don't mind me asking, do you want to talk a little bit about those sort of conclusions that you came to with the committee on, you know, I know they're Massachusetts um, specific, but I, I, I find that really interesting. Sure. No, some of the work had to do with um, identifications and the use of uh, more up-to-date uh, science as to sort of the frailty of identifications and uh, uh, witness uh, one-on-one identifications, Some, and, and also the way in which those are conducted by the police departments, um, things like that that have to do with the actual processes from arrest and investigation all the way up through trial that we thought we could, could use some tweaking um, in Massachusetts. Great, thank you. So you run a court based on principles of justice, mercy, um, and compassion. Can you tell us a bit about some of the cases that might have stayed with you at your time, um, during your time as a judge? There are many cases that stay with me. They, the, the work is, um, it, it's a human endeavor. There are human interactions and failures that lead people to court whether it's criminal or civil, in terms of uh, compassion and the sort of the philosophy, you know, every, every judge is a little different in how they do things and why and how they think about cases. Uh, for me, the, um, this is my 13th year on the bench, and um, I've certainly developed over time uh, to be um, a little uh, to be more thoughtful in terms of criminal penalties based upon uh, some some inescapable facts, like the fact that the United States is the most incarcerated 
country in the world. Um, like the fact that we, even in Massachusetts, still impose longer sentences on black and brown people and still impose higher bail on black and brown people. Um, the things that affect your freedom. And with those things in mind, as well as all the basic principles of law and justice and the, the you know, uh, goals of sentencing, those things have shaped the way that I deal with people who come before me. I mean, it can't help but, but shape a, a judge when you have experiences and then you continue to gather knowledge about the outcomes and the way the outcomes affect the communities we serve. So there are so many matters. Uh, one became a uh, more public display of that type of thought process on my part it was a young man who had been sort of in and out of jail for drug selling, drug dealing, essentially, and was before me on another case of the same sort. But it part of what we do is to try to fashion sentences that make sense, that serve some, some of the goals of sentencing, and that fit the particular offender. And it struck me at the time that being in and out of um, jail really wasn't doing the trick with this particular person. It wasn't serving the purpose that we wanted it to serve. And yet I could see that he had potential to do other things. And so instead of yet another term of incarceration, perhaps longer, which is ends up being what happens, um, you, the more you're involved in the system, the longer your, your sentences become. And instead of doing that, I went the other direction and said, all right, you're a cook, you want to open a restaurant. And, um, but there are things clearly um, that were driving him to still need to sell drugs and to make money in that way. And I gave him an opportunity uh, to be on probation and with some other requirements and to sort of give him a second chance at trying to come out of that world and open the restaurant. And so it became the subject of a, an award ceremony um, in which a, an organization called the Center for Restorative Justice spotlighted that case, his um, sentence, uh, my decision, and what his life was like thereafter. And I, and I think at that point, he and a friend had actually um, opened a restaurant. And so the cases like that, there are so many of in which, you know, um, perhaps thinking a little bit more about the whole person and the circumstances may lead to a result that does not involve incarceration all the time. And it doesn't mean that, you know, no one goes to jail or prison on the cases that I preside on there, that that's certainly not the case. Um, unfortunately, I've sentenced many people to incarceration. But I think that in the United States, we have to start looking at other ways of addressing criminal activity. And, and as judges, uh, who better to, to start trying to make those changes?
I agree, I think, wholeheartedly. And I wanted to kind of, um, it's a question, I suppose, but how can we, um, because you talk a lot about like rehabilitative almost kind of approaches to some criminal activity and like recognizing when a person does need incarceration when they when they don't and I think that's a very intuitive way of approaching things that might not be present in the whole of the judiciary let's say how can we better you know do we educate them how do we put maybe more compassion or understanding that humanize some of the people that come through the courts um, can actually um, conclude and you know these sort of success stories doesn't have to you know obviously doesn't have to be a a massive thing but people's lives could be changed so how can we better approach our judiciary in that way um, so that we kind of have a long-lasting change almost in how they approach criminals i think it's happening uh to some extent now if you watch uh true crime and court tv and these types of things we get to see some trials play out uh on the national stage from from state courts uh like the court that i sit in and you get a real sort of bird's eye view in those instances of, of how the state courts operate, how judges operate, how they think, and what the, the processes of being going through trial or criminal case are like for individuals. And I think it, 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 it can vary greatly across the states, as we have seen in some of the very um, highly uh, covered trials. But I think right now is a, a such an a exciting moment to be uh, alive on the planet because there is, uh, particularly here, a focus right now on bias, race, discrimination, race relations, um, the, the long-term effects of slavery in this country. So much of that that was not really squarely on the table when we talked about criminal justice, is now. And I think it's, um, whether we like it or not, affecting judges and the way we do things and the way we understand um, our own actions and and what our decisions lead to um, in the the larger sense with with the people that we impose sentences on, with their families, with those communities, with those cities. And I think... um, the learning process for judges is, is happening. And I think there is a shift in which uh, we too are being educated on these topics and we too are doing implicit bias trainings and are learning you know, that maybe the way we've been thinking about things isn't quite as neutral as we had thought and as we want. So I do think that the public and the bar certainly can affect the way that the courts operate in the way that we do business and, and outcomes by uh, pushing for judges to be more educated, pushing for judges to have more interaction with the public. Um, I don't think that we can continue to sort of sit on a perch and give out um, you know, wise advice and counsel and um, and sentencing and, and decisions without really understanding what's happening. And right now, when social media is such a um, a communication tool 
And when normal media is so instantaneous now where you can know uh, what's happening in Ukraine today, as soon as you open your eyes without with, with a click of a button or just looking onto your phone, it is easier than ever, uh, I think, for judges to be aware and more aware of the world and changes in the world and how the things that our systems have done affect um, the world, this country, this state, this community. It, it, it's easier than ever. And so I think the more communication between the bench and the bar, uh, the more communication between the bench and the public, the better. Thank you. Um, I have one uh, last question. So do you think, so obviously the, the, the focus of the view is mainly uh, for women in the criminal justice system as, and also, you know, um, BME women, you know. So what can be done more to sort of protect and divert them from ever coming in contact with the justice system? Because like you said, once it becomes a cycle, it is really hard to to break it, especially for underrepresented groups and underprivileged groups in the US and in the UK. So what sort of things could we do to change that? You know, with regard to women in particular, I think it bears out probably all over the United States that a lot of the uh, interaction women have in the criminal justice system, some of it is at their own initiation and and bad decision making. And some of it is um, based on things that others go through, that men go through as well. Um, addiction and substance abuse. Um, and there's a and there's just separate chunk uh, with women in which some of the interaction with the criminal justice system is relationship-based, based on relationships they have with men or others who are engaged in, in crimes and criminal activity. And I think that for women, there are many, many ways to um, sort of, as you said, divert or prevent them from entering the system at all, including all the sorts of programs that are um, empowering, empowering to women and girls, uh, sports programs, um, programs that deal with, you know, um, career goals and objectives, and programs that educate girls on domestic violence, on their rights in the United States, and on um, relationships. You know, these are things that sometimes are not uh, taught in school. And there are sometimes school-based programs. There are sometimes programs that are not school-based. But I think um, activities that empower girls and implant in them the notion that they make their own decisions and chart their own lives I think is very, very important. And um, that's something I think that is improving as well, but we need more of in our communities. That was truly, I think, inspiring to me and also I think all of our listeners. So um, thank you to Judge Fryson. And Judge Fryson will also be doing a takeover on Instagram on International Women's Day. So keep an eye out for that. It's at um, rebel underscore justice. But thank you so much um, for speaking to me today. I think um, I was really enlightened as well as a student. It makes me want to strive to do better in the legal system. Thank you so much. This concludes this special podcast where we celebrate International Women's Day. 
Thank you, Judge Fryson, for your presence and Narinja Arkan for a very powerful discussion. At The View, we pay tribute to all women everywhere who are suffering from institutional oppression, deprivation of their liberty, and whose lives are mirrored and obstructed by bias. We call for the freedom of these women out of oppression into the light. Today, let's be the change we want to see and break the bias.